The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder and Monty Meyer. And now, here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. Well, 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 my friends. Here we are, another fine episode of Walking Through the Big Book. With myself and Chris Schroeder, and it is exciting to be here with you. I was just uh, listening to that song. I always just love that part. Remember me, um, the one down on the floor. You know, I'd, I'd wake up uh, after these parties and and look around, and there may be a couple people, you know, laying on the floor. But for the most part, everybody was gone, and it was just me sitting there, and it wouldn't even be my house. <laughs> How you doing, Chris? I am doing great, Monty, and I, I'm I'm very fortunate not to be waking up in strange places anymore either. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I'm uh, I'm having technical difficulties with my headset, folks. Hold on. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I think probably the strangest place I ever woke up, Monty, was I, I came to after a party, and they had set me adrift in Tampa Bay in a dinghy with no oars. Oh, no. And I was about a mile offshore. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, gee, what'd you do? Well, I had to get towed in by the Coast Guard. Oh, man, Chris, what a story. quite embarrassing. What a story. <laughs> well... Speaking of stories, here we go again with, uh, with with the book that's got some of the greatest stories that, that really that have ever been written, uh, I- including some of the greatest instructions for living that have ever been written. The uh, big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, folks, as we're going through, if this is the first time you've tuned in or you've done the naughty thing and skipped ahead and you have uh, the DVD or you were listening online and You've skipped ahead here to uh, show number, I think, probably 29. Um, this is uh, uh, an in-depth study, sentence by sentence, uh, really chapter by chapter, really looking into this thing called the big book and uh, a better way of, of living and instructions for living that really can be applied in many areas of one's life. And uh, particularly in, in, in the study of it here at Take 12 Radio, we're talking about alcoholism. And uh, we are looking at the chapter of the family afterwards. And Yes, we are. Uh, you know, one of the things, Monty, that is very, very interesting to me is uh, in modern addiction and alcoholism treatment, <laughs> over the course of the past 30 or 20 or 30 years, it's become really, really apparent that any treatment process, uh, if it can, needs to include the family. Right. So, uh, Bill was, you know, Bill was so far-seeing. I, he saw so many things. He was like a visionary. You know, he talks he talks in here about the entire family being to some extent ill, and that's really what uh, modern clinicians and modern uh, modern treatment centers have discovered. That uh, that that's absolutely true when there's addiction or when there's alcoholism in a family. Uh, to some degree, the entire family needs to be treated for there to be be wholesale recovery throughout throughout the the family. Mm-hmm. And in this chapter, the family afterward, he talks about uh, a number of things that he was he was very perceptive um, that he you know he he was able to notice this in the small amount of time he was working with 
alcoholics and their families. Uh, but this is a this is a great chapter, I think, for the alcoholic, for family members, for for sponsors, for for anyone uh, uh, to look at because it has a lot of perceptions. It ha- it has a lot of observations. It has a lot of principles that you can practice in it, and there's a lot of value uh, to this chapter. And in, it's a shame that it gets skipped over uh, uh, so much in uh, in certain workshops or, um, uh, you know, it doesn't get covered as much as some of the material in the other parts of the book. In, in, Chris, in, in your experience, have, have you ever run across a family um, where living through and walking through the, the father, the child's, the mother's alcoholism, whoever it may be, they've discovered that they too are alcoholic? Yeah, certainly that happens. Um, uh, certainly that happens. And there's many, uh, many people that I know who, because they had sent their kids to rehab or because their parents were in rehab, when they were in the family program, recognized their own alcoholism. Uh, yeah. uh, that's, that's happened uh, quite often. More often than not, though, is a family, because the family gets sick over slowly, over, over a period of time, uh, most often uh, they don't recognize how ill they really are. They don't understand uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the behavior patterns that they're following that are really, really unhealthy. Right. And sometimes it's a real challenge for... Uh, you know, uh, for someone to alert the rest of the family uh, that they're not doing too good. You know, mo- more often than not, what will happen is, you know, uh, the, uh, let's say the husband is the alcoholic. Everybody will be pointing the finger in the direction of the alcoholic. And when somebody stops and says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, you, you've, got, you've got some issues here yourself. Uh, so there's a lot of resistance, you know. Mm-hmm. So often they they just they can't believe it, you know. I'm I'm here for him, or you know, I brought you guys over to talk about him, uh, not me. And you know, there'll there'll be some resistance. But when you want to see when you want to see a family, you know, get healthy, I think each specific uh, member of that family needs to uh, needs to take a close look at what's going on in their life, and you know, take responsibility for. Uh, for anything they need to take responsibility for to uh, uh, to get better, yeah. And yeah. you know this is a this is a great uh, chapter to look at some of that stuff. So this is chapter nine, the family afterward. It's on uh, page one twenty two of uh, of my book. All right. Our women folk have suggested certain attitudes a wife may take with a husband who is recovering. Perhaps they created the impression that he is to be wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. Successful readjustment means the opposite. All members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. Again, those are principles, and sometimes these are principles. These principles are very, very difficult, uh, uh, you know, to to be able to get behind. I, I know it was a, it was a long while before you know my common ground was tolerance, understanding, and love. More often than not, it was uh, it was uh, anger, resentment, and judgmentalism. Mm-hmm. This involves a process of deflation. The alcoholic, his wife, his children, his in-laws, each one is likely to have fixed ideas about the family's attitude towards himself or herself. Each is interested in having his or her wishes respected. We find the more one member of the family demands that the others concede to him, the more resentful they become. This makes for discord and unhappiness. You know, earlier... uh, Earlier in the other chapters, it talked about we have to stop playing God. We have to stop being the actor trying to run the whole show, trying to direct the play when we're not the director. We're just an actor in the play. And he's bringing that, uh, that philosophy into, uh, into the family. And, you know, if, if you look at any, any family that uh, could be considered dysfunctional, you know, for want of a better term, you're going to see that there's there's like warring factions. There's people maneuvering for position and uh, manipulating other people in different ways, and, and all of that really leads to uh, you know an unhealthy uh, lifestyle and and certainly an un- unhappiness all around. Everybody takes their role, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, uh, for for you know for my part in the family that that I came from, I really thought I was the smartest one. I really thought I had a unique perspective on, you know, how life should be lived and how things should be thought about and how people should believe. And, 
you know, it was really crazy because, you know, in, in my family is a brother and sister who both have PhDs, you know, a mother and a father who were Phi Beta Kappa from really great educational institutions. And, you know, here, here I am, I, I graduated the second stupidest in my high school graduating class. <laughs> and and I think I think all of these people just don't get it. You know, it's the it's the unbelievable ego of uh, of the alcoholic. Right. So this makes for discord and unhappiness. And why? Is it not because each wants to play the lead? Is not each trying to arrange the family show to his liking? Is he not unconsciously trying to see what he can take from the family life rather than give? Here's a, here's a great concept. Cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained abnormal condition. Um, you know, I, I want to read that again. Okay. Quitting drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained abnormal condition. <laughs> there are still so many people out there, Monty, that thinks think sobriety is the goal of this whole thing. Yeah. You know, so, sobriety is certainly absolutely important, but recovery is the goal of this thing. Because the difference between sobriety and recovery is like the difference between night and day. A doctor said to us, years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic. The entire family is, to some extent, ill. And that's certainly, certainly true. Uh, Today, they're really, really finding out uh, that families need so much work when a family member is, uh, is, is getting sober and is being treated. Really, the whole family should be treated to some extent also. They're really finding, uh, finding this out, mm-hmm. and Bill knew it from the beginning. Let families realize as they start their journey that all will not be fair weather. Each in his, t- in his turn may be footsore and may straggle. There will be alluring shortcuts and bypass down which they may wander and lose their way. Suppose we tell you some of the obstacles a family will meet. Suppose we suggest how they may be avoided, even converted to good use for others. The family of an alcoholic longs for the return of happiness and security. They remember when father was romantic, thoughtful, and successful. Today's life is measured against that of other years, and when it falls short, the family may be unhappy. Family confidence in dad is rising high. The good old days will soon be back, they think. Sometimes they demand that dad bring them back instantly. God, they believe, almost owes this recompense on a long overdue account. But the head of the house has spent years pulling down the structures of business, romance, and friendship and health. These things are now ruined or damaged. It will take time to clear away the wreck. Though old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, the new structures will take years to complete. Father knows he's to blame. It may take him many seasons of hard work to be restored financially, but he should not be reproached. Perhaps he will never have much money again, but the wise family will admire him for what he is trying to be rather than for what he is trying to get. And that's, you know, that's a spiritual uh, a concept. The, the, the more recovered you become, the less you're interested in what you can get and the mm-hmm. more interested uh, you are in what you can be. You know that's that's a uh, that's a challenging statement though right there um to tell a wife or uh I would say a, a a child that is probably past the age of 16 um you know your husband or your father should not be reproached I mean these guys are madder than heck and you're telling them you know <laughs> don't scold him you know he's he's sick don't scold him I mean if I didn't know better, if I didn't know anything about this illness, you know, I would probably chase you out of my house. You know, what do you mean don't <laughs> scold him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he just burnt down, uh, you know, the new addition on the house and lost his job and wrecked the car and gambled away all the money. I- I'm not supposed to reproach Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we got a guy in our home group that cut his house in half with a chainsaw. How about that one? <laughs> He was probably in the middle of the divorce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but um, you, you know, I, I, think, I think to some degree, Bill, you know, kind of put, put this in here. Don't nag. Don't reproach. Right. Don't criticize the alcoholic. I think, you know, he might have had a little bit of agenda. 
But I also think it's not going to help uh, to reproach the alcoholic. Right. But listen, the, the chances of you being an alcoholic, getting sober, and then finding a really healthy recovery are you, you, you're not in the my, uh, minor, I'm sorry, you're not in the major, majority. Um, if you if you look at it, five to ten percent of the population being alcoholic, and the small amount of people that are in recovery. You have to ask, you have to ask yourself, you know, like maybe what is fifteen, ten, or fifteen percent uh, of the alcoholics find their way uh, to recovery. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's a fine line. Sometimes it's a it's a da- you know it's a dangerous road. And I think it is wise uh, to try not to do things that might sabotage one's sure. opportunity uh, to get sober. Yeah. And you know, I've I've seen things so destructive destructive Monty. One of the things I saw is this guy was so alcoholic he could barely hang on to a job. He was drunk constantly, but he was pretty successful with this particular job and he was making a lot of money for the family. Well, you know, I mean he was dying. So, you know, he comes into a support group, he gets a little bit of outpatient treatment and he's really trying to get his life back together and he is just shot out. And the first thing his wife is mad about is him going to meetings. You know, why are you going out every night? And she just basically badgered him to the point where he just couldn't go out, you know, to these meetings anymore. I mean, it would cause a fight every single night, so he just, you know, slowly stopped going. And he ended up relapsing and losing everything. You know, mm-hmm. so so was that the smart thing to do, to, to badger this guy, you know, saying, you know, you're sober now, you need to stay at home, you owe me? <laughs> or would it have been wiser looking at this like it's an, it's a medical condition, it's, a, it's an illness, mm-hmm. this person needs to have his treatment, his the, the recovery process, it would have been wiser, but there's you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding in, in family members. They they really think that, you know, uh, uh, the, the alcoholic, you know, did this on purpose. You know, they still they still think that way. So, so you know, again, uh, I think it's kind of wise to, to caution them away from being, you know, uh, uh, you know, attacking the, uh, the, the alcoholic while they're trying to get sober. Sure. Now and then the family will be plagued by specters from the past. For the drinking career of almost every alcoholic has been marked by escapades, funny and humiliating, shameful or tragic. The first impulse will be to bury these skeletons in a dark closet and padlock the door. The family may be possessed by the idea that future happiness can be based only upon forgetfulness of the past. We think that such a view is self-centered and in direct conflict with the new way of living. And it truly is, because the new way of living wants you to take responsibility for those skeletons in your closet so that you can truly remove them from the house. <laughs> and, you know, they won't be popping up anymore. Um, Henry, Ford, Henry Ford once made a wise remark to the effect that experience is the thing of supreme value in life. That is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. We grow by our willingness to face, face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family, and frequently it is the only one. You know, that's a very, very interesting paragraph. Uh, first of all, the, the Henry, Henry Ford quote is great. Experience is the supreme thing uh, of value in life, and certainly in, uh, in support groups. Uh, you know there will be there will be people in support groups who will share opinions, and there will be people in support groups who share experience. And I'll give you I'll give you one example, Monty. Let you know. Let's say somebody raises their hand in a in a twelve step meeting and says, you know, uh, you know I haven't I haven't done the step that we're talking about tonight formally, but you know I'm going to share a little bit about it. You know, for the next five minutes. <laughs> yeah. And and really what they're doing is they're they're sharing an opinion. Now, somebody that raises their hand and says, "You know, I've I've just done a number of a uh, number of these amends, or I've just taken this step, and I I want to tell you, you know, what's going on in my life right now." They're, they're going to be sharing their experience. So, for uh, for uh, a member of a twelve-step fellowship, one of the things you need to do is discern the difference between when someone is sharing their opinion, or you know, slogans that they've heard you know, for years and, and really don't know how to apply when that's being shared or when actual experience is is being shared. Because it is the experience that can save lives, uh, 
and it's the opinions that can cost lives. It really is. And, you know, the concept of actually taking your experience, even if it's a very bad one when you were out there drinking and turning it into a, a principal asset in your life is an amazing one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I first read this, I, I didn't know what they were talking about. I first read this book in, in, a, in a rehab. But today I understand what they're talking about. You know, some of the really bad things that happened to me, even in early, uh, early sobriety, Monty, I'm able to share those things with someone who's who's struggling or is you know somewhere around that same mile marker uh, on the road to recovery, and I can actually share my experience of those tough times and basically you know what what I did and what happened because I did a certain thing and you know how I've how I've moved forward. It it really is uh, an asset that is incredibly beneficial to other people when when you you know you learn how to use it right. It's like, you know, talking about people saying things that they really don't know how to apply or they're really not sure what they mean. Uh, boy, you hear you hear a lot of that. I mean, uh, I, one thing in particular that I hear a lot from people that probably haven't even been in the rooms more than a month um, is when somebody new comes in, they say, um, you're the most important person here today. And. Uh, you know, there's different opinions on that. Um, you probably heard some, you know, <laughs> well, no, I'm the most important person here today. Uh, but it, that goes along with, with some of the other ones, you know, the one day at a time thing. And, and they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Uh, and, and they almost look silly even when they say it. Uh, you know, somewhere, somewhere along the line in many of the 12-step fellowships, it became easier to just throw out little wisdom well, sayings yeah. or, you know, little little cliches. It, it became easier than actually doing the work and gaining some experience. And that's really sad. As, as far as the newcomer being the most important <coughs> person in the room, um, they're certainly not to me. <laughs> you know, I think, I think the newcomer is the lifeblood of uh, the 12-step fellowship, but the experienced member is the heart Without yeah. uh, without an experienced member, then you're just going to have you're going to have newcomers bouncing around like pinballs, never getting anywhere. You know, without someone experienced in in the steps uh, and in the concepts uh, and in the principles uh, and in the traditions, w without that, there is going to be no direction for the newcomer, and it's going to be uh, a bad Bob Newhart, you know, group therapy session, which is, <laughs> uh, which is going to be absolutely worthless, uh, especially if they're really alcoholic. What's, what's so, you know, there, there's many, many sayings that I yeah. don't buy. Here's one of them. Here's one of them that, that okay. I don't buy. Stick with the winners. Uh. Now, I believe that you should be sticking with the winners, you know, before you get through the steps. But if you stick with the winners after you've gone through the steps, you're just going to be you're just going to be talking recovery with recovered people. Yeah. What we're supposed to be doing is sticking with the losers, helping the losers. You know, you know what I mean. Right. We're supposed to be helping the people that are struggling and having a hard time. We're supposed to be in the trenches uh, with them, trying to offer them a simple kit of spiritual tools. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so that you know they can they can find uh, recovery and and probably you know salvation to their life. Um, so again, you know, sticking with the winners. These are slogans. We really don't know where they came from very much. Uh, there's one of them that I do know where it came from. You've heard of the one think 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 the upside down think think think. Right. Okay. What it was was way back, I think it was the early 60s, maybe even the 50s, um, one of the members uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous who was in, a, in, a, in the central office around New York who was stuffing letters to go out to the different, different uh, areas and groups uh, worked for IBM. And in IBM, they printed up a bunch of these upside-down think things, and, the, and instead of the guy saying, hey, you know, I guess what, I'll just throw these away, he thought... You know, this is this is pretty cool. I think I'll just stuff the envelopes with, you know, I'll put this in with the envelopes too. So all of a sudden, all these groups around the United States got these letters, and it had the think, think, think thing in there. So they figured, oh, this must be a new slogan, and they put it up on the wall. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, you know, you don't know where some some of these came from. And another thing about about slogans is 
they, they leave so much latitude in interpretation that if you say something like easy does it to somebody, yeah. they may think, well, easy does it. I'm not going to go to too many meetings and, you know, I'm going to take my time with the steps and, you know, easy does it. I'm going to take it easy on, you know, the commitments and the service in my life. And if you do that, easy, easy, easy done killed you is, is yeah. easy did, you know. So, uh, so it's just, you know, it, some of them, uh, some of them should just be kept in the closet where they belong. Because what you're doing is you may have an entire different interpretation of that slogan. It may be very, very appropriate for you and very meaningful to you. And you give it to a newcomer with a sick mind, and it's going to sabotage them. You know, right. it, it could it could sabotage their uh, their forward momentum. So you know, as you can probably tell, I'm not a big slogan guy. Right, right. But uh, you know, yeah, yeah. I I I I think I think even one of them came from Alanon. I think didn't it? Which one? Uh, was it Live and Left Live or? Um, I think I think at the end of this chapter, um, Live and Let Live. It's actually you know Bill Wilson put it, first things first, Live and Let Live. Easy does it, but. Again, you know, for us to understand those in context, we really have to place ourselves back in the late 30s uh, uh, groups, uh, Oxford group of drunk uh, um, uh, scenario where they came from. You know, um, first things first is is basically, you know, place, place God in his kingdom first and everything else will, will come to you. Uh, you know, I don't really even know where well, what, what they're what they mean by some of these other ones. But you know, to really understand what they're saying, you have to understand it in context and not make up your own context. Right. So you know, they, they can be dangerous. All right, let's get back to the book. This painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problem. We think, we think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not. And when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring uh, the former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that, in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. Interesting in this paragraph, uh, certainly throughout the whole uh, narrative of this book, it's all about preparing us as recovered alcoholics to help others recover. In this paragraph, it's basically saying families who have been relieved, families who have learned this way of life, families who now have a recovered uh, family member, need to go out and help other families. You know, it's very, very interesting, and certainly not something that really happens a whole lot these days, unfortunately. You know, there is the, the family groups. And, yeah, here's, you know, here's um, another, here's another, like that, but, um, Chris, you know, here's, here's another thing I can envision. Okay, here's the guy who's been going to meetings, and he's actually doing, doing very well. He's been there for a few years, uh, but the family is still kind of, you know, kind of got an ouch factor still going on. And and the poor guy comes home and says, you know, I think would really help Marge uh, and uh, Jimmy and Janet. I think if you go out and help some other families, you might uh, feel better about yourself. <laughs> yeah. You know, Marge yeah. might just throw a, a, a coffee can at him or something. <laughs> but it is so, true. Um, it is true, though. That... Let, let's look at let's look at this in context. Two yeah. things. One of them is the. These early members went through the steps in a very short period of time, no more than several weeks, okay? They, mm -hmm. they went through the steps, and they've already made direct amends to the best of whatever ability they had at the time to the family. Number two, it was very important, especially for Dr. Bob, to bring the family into the meetings, Okay, the family were invited into the meetings, into the into the homes. Uh, in, in, you know, they were all pretty much open meetings. The alcoholics were the ones that talked, but the family members were invited basically to learn how to do the prayer and meditation and learn the spiritual principles so that they could apply it in their life. So you have to take it in context. Today, that's really not what happens. You send you send father off. 
to go to those 12-step meetings and you stay home and you, you, know, you, you watch 60 Minutes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really not the way it used to be anymore. So if you look at it in context, they, they, had, they had a better chance of being helpful in the old days because they were drawn in yeah. more fully into the whole process. It is possible to dig up past mistakes so that they become a blight, a veritable plague. For example, we know of situations in which the alcoholic or his wife have had love affairs. In the first flush of spiritual experience, they forgive each other and drew closer together. The miracle of reconciliation was at hand. Then, under one provocation or another, the aggrieved one would unearth the old affair and angrily cast its ashes about. A few of us have had these growing pains, and they hurt a great deal. Husbands and wives have sometimes been obliged to separate for a time until new perspective, new victory over her pride could be rewon. In most cases, the alcoholic survived this ordeal without relapse, but not always. So we think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. Now, you know, um, I used to do uh, big book workshops with this guy who had a rule. It was a seven-day rule in the family. After seven days, it, if there was something that somebody was upset about or, 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 or someone did something wrong, it was not to be brought up. Hmm. After seven days, if you haven't dealt with it somehow, if amends haven't been made, if you haven't gotten current with them about it, um, uh, it was to be left alone. And, you know, I'm, I, I've, I can't honestly tell you I've practiced that policy, but it sounds like a good one to me, you know. Um, sometimes, sometimes bringing these things up serves no good, uh, good occurrence. You, you know, um, uh, I, I've, had, I've had relationships with people who, um, uh, uh, women specifically, that would bring things up that I did 15 <laughs> years ago, you know. And, I mean, that's really not helpful in, in today's current, uh, current state of affairs. It really doesn't have any relevance on who I am today or how I'm operating today. And all it does is, is add fuel to a fire. Now, now, you know, Chris. Chris, some women are going to be are going to be mad at this. What I'm going to say, but that's okay. This is just my observation. All right. Okay. Okay. Guys can be playing basketball with each other, and one guy just gets a little too rough and punches the other guy in the nose with his elbow, and they go at it. Man, they are madder than hatters at each other, and within 20 minutes, they're playing basketball again. You know, everything's forgot. Sure. Gals, however, what I've experienced is something I did 15 years ago. It's it's like this is just like what you did 15 years ago when you did <laughs> such and such. <laughs> what is up with that? <laughs> you know, I I think it I think it's a processing error or something. You yeah. know, I mean, men have processing errors and women have processing errors in their thinking patterns. Uh, you know, that that could be could be I'll say a little bit different than uh, than one another. You know, gender specific. Um, you know, we we each have our uh, our, our issues <laughs> and, and faults. Uh, you know. The, the fact of the matter is, is if you're dealing with with an alcoholic, you know you're uh, you're dealing you're dealing with an ill person, and, and until they've got some serious recovery under their belt, you know, and they're they're standing on solid footing, you're you're you know you're not really helping by uh, by engaging in you know a heated argument. Right. It's just uh, try, you know let's all try to find a way around that, you know, and. And again, it's it's growing pains. Bill Bill Wilson talked about all this stuff as as basically growing pains. You know, it's not right, wrong, or indifferent. It's just we're you know hopefully we're yeah. moving forward. You know, our momentum is is forward moving rather than backward. We families of Alcoholics Anonymous keep few skeletons in the closet. Everyone knows about the other alcoholics' troubles. This is a condition which, in ordinary life, would produce untold grief. There might be scandalous gossip. Laughter at the expense of other people and the tendency to take advantage of intimate information. Among us, these are rare occurrences. We do talk about each other a great deal, but we almost invariably temper such talk by a spirit of love and tolerance. 
Another principle we observe carefully is that we do not relate intimate experiences of another person unless we are sure he would approve. We find it better when possible to stick to our own stories. A man may criticize or laugh at himself and will affect others favorably, but criticism or ridicule coming from another often produces the contrary effect. Members of a family should watch such matters carefully, for one careless, inconsiderate remark has been known to raise the very devil. We alcoholics are sensitive people. It takes some of us a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. It certainly took me several years. You know, the steps, like, like, propelled me forward past that sensitiveness. Um, you know, it was unfortunately a, a little while until I had started to do the steps, but I, you know, I was tragically attached to what, what I thought other people thought of me, you know, the impression I mm-hmm. thought I was me giving. Too. And when someone was insulting or critical of me, I took it at such a personal level. It was vendetta-esque, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, that that's how sensitive we can be sometimes. Yeah. Here's another thing. You know, I was just talking to somebody today about the switching of addictions. More and more in modern treatment, they're recognizing that uh, very few people have only one addiction. And many, many people will switch addictions. They'll, 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 they'll get sober, but they'll gamble. And, and then they'll... they'll, they'll They'll curb their gambling, and then they'll be into pornography on the web, and you know, or they'll be they'll be shopaholics, or you know, they'll have food problems. I mean, they're seeing that more and more um, the addictive personality is uh, you know is manifest, even when someone gets sober or someone gets clean from drugs. So here again, Bill is kind of seeing this ahead of time. Many alcoholics are enthusiasts. They run to extremes. At the beginning of recovery, a man will take as a rule one of two directions. He may either plunge into a frantic attempt to get on his feet in business, workaholism, or he may be so enthralled by his new life that he talks or thinks of little else, or somebody who quits his job just to do AA full-time. You know, I've <laughs> met some people like that, Monty. I know a couple of guys that had great careers. They, they, got, they got sober. And all of a sudden, they ended up in the coffee shop just talking about uh, sobriety all day long and started, you know, cashing in their, their, uh, their retirement uh, accounts so that they could be spiritual. And, <laughs> you know, that, that again, that, that's another unhealthy dependence. Yeah. You know, it's an unhealthy dependence to be a workaholic. It's an unhealthy dependence to, you know, be a recovery-aholic. There has to be, you know, some kind of, kind of balance. <laughs> in either case certain family problems will arise with these we have had experience galore we think it dangerous if you if you run long run, rushes headlong uh, at his economic problem the family will be affected also pleasantly at first as they feel their money troubles are about to be solved but then not so pleasantly as they find themselves neglected dad may be tired at night and preoccupied by day he may take small interest in the children and may show irritation when reproved for his delinquencies. If not irritable, he may seem dull and boring, not gay and affectionate as the family would like him to be. Mother may complain of inattention. They are all disappointed and often let him feel it. Beginning with such complaints, a barrier arises. He is straining every nerve to make up for lost time. He is striving to recover fortune and reputation and feels he is doing very well. Sometimes mother and children don't think so. Having been neglected and misused in the past, they think father owes them more than they are getting. They want him to make a fuss over them. They expect him to give them uh, the nice things they used to have before he drank, drank so much and to show, him, uh, show his contrition for what they suffered. But that doesn't give freely of himself. Resentment grows. He becomes still less communicative. Sometimes he explodes over a trifle. The family is mysticized. Mystified, they criticize, pointing out how he is falling down on his spiritual program. This sort of thing can be avoided. Both father and the family are mistaken, though each side may have some justification. It is of little use to argue and only makes the impasse worse. The family must realize that dad, though marvelously improved, is still convalescing. They should be thankful he is sober and able to be of this world once more. Let them praise his progress. 
Let them remember that his drinking wrought all kinds of damage that they that may take long to repair. If they sense these things, they will not take so seriously his periods of crankiness, depression, or apathy, which will disappear when there is tolerance, love, and spiritual understanding. You know, he's kind of war- warning the family that what you give out, you will get back. Mm-hmm. If you give out, you know, positive acceptance of the Father, you're probably going to get back, you know, a positive reaction. And that's just a, a spiritual principle that, that's, that's good at all times. You know, but especially in the in the tricky times in, in say, uh, the alcoholic's first year or two back in the family. Mm-hmm. The head of the house ought to remember that he is mainly to blame for what befell his home. He can scarcely square in the account in his lifetime, but he must see the danger of over-concentration on financial success. Although financial recovery is on the way for many of us, we found we could not place money first. For us, material well-being always followed spiritual progress and never proceeded. I have seen, Monty, a lot of people fail because they put so much attention into work. They had to have that big job where they were gone from 6 in the morning till 8 or 9 o'clock at night, and they just did not have time for support group meetings. I'm sorry, I'll do a little bit on the weekend if I have time. And by placing work... um, at a higher level of importance than recovery, they sabotaged both. Mm. In other words, you know, um, the, the, the great lie every alcoholic tells themselves is, I've got this now. I'm okay. Thanks for the information. Now that I know I need, not to, I, I need to not drink, I'm going to get back about my life. Sometimes they have to learn by falling. Uh, sometimes they learn by other people's experience and by, you know, listening to a sponsor or a spiritual advisor, but sometimes they have to fall. And I've seen many people fall who put way more importance on their job than they did on uh, meeting steps and service. And, you know, um, sometimes you got to learn the hard way. Yeah, and I, I've, I've, uh, I've heard that slogan, um, um, I, I got sober, I got a car. I got a job, I got a girl, I got drunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you you can't let you can't let what recovery gives you the things that recovery give you take you away from recovery. I mean that that would be stupid, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, uh so so there's a balance and a good sponsor, a good spiritual advisor given the spiritual consent to take the person to task is going to help them along this path because it is a tricky path. You know, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'd never gotten sober or, or, or gotten involved in recovery before I got sober and got into recovery. I needed some help, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, so a lot of times, uh, what, what my sponsor's job was pointing me back toward meetings, steps and service meetings, steps, service meetings, steps, service. Remember that, you know, you, what you work is something you do after meeting steps and service. Meeting steps and service are not something you do after work. It's a shift in perspective, but sometimes it's a sometimes it's one that'll save your life. Since a home has suffered more than anything else, it is well that a man exert himself there. He is not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness and love under his own roof. We know there are difficult wives and families, but the man who is getting over alcoholism must remember he did much to make them so. As each member of a resentful family begins to see his shortcomings and admits them to others, he lays the basis for a helpful discussion. These families' talks will be constructive if they can be carried on without heated argument, self-pity, self-justification, or resentful criticism. Good luck with that on your first few of them. (laughs) Little by little, mother and children will see they ask too much, and father will see he gives too little. Giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle. And that has to be our That's the guiding principle of this book. So often I see people heading toward their support group group, uh, groups to fill up like it's a spiritual gas station. You know, or they'll come out of a meeting complaining that they didn't get anything out of that meeting. Okay, those people are under the mistaken idea that they're going there to get. 
Those meetings are uh, are certainly a place where newcomers can get, but if you've been around a while, they're a place where you're supposed to go to give. Uh, giving rather than getting should be your uh, your guiding principle when going off to a support group meeting. Mm-hmm. Assume, on the other hand, that Father has at the outset a stirring spiritual experience. Overnight, as it were, he is a different man. He becomes a religious enthusiast. He is unable to focus on anything else. As soon as his sobriety begins to be taken as a, as a matter of course, the families may look at their strange new dad with apprehension and then with irritation. There is talk about spiritual matters morning, noon, and night. He may demand that the family find God in a hurry or exhibit amazing indifference to them and say he is above worldly consideration. He may tell mother, who has been religious all her life, that she doesn't know what it's all about and that she had better get his brand of spirituality while there is yet time. When Father takes this tack, the family may react unfavorably. They may be jealous of a God who has stolen Dad's affection. While grateful that he drinks no more, they may not like the idea that God has accomplished the miracle where they failed. They often forget Father was beyond human aid. They may not see why their love and devotion did not straighten him out. That is not so spiritual after all, they say. If he means to right his past wrongs, why all this concern for everyone in the world but his family? What about his talk that God will take care of them? They suspect Father is a bit balmy. He is not so unbalanced as they might think. Many of us have experienced Dad's elation. We have indulged in spiritual intoxication, like a gaunt prospector. Belt drawn in over the last ounce of food, our pick struck gold. Joy at our release from a lifetime of frustration knew no bounds. Father feels he has struck something better than gold. For a time, he may try to hug the new treasure to himself. He may not see at once that he has barely scratched a limitless load which will pay dividends only if he mines it for the rest of his life and insists on giving away the entire product. I love that sentence. I don't know uh, about you, Monty, but it's a great, it's a great descriptive of, uh, of what we do on the spiritual plane in the recovery process, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and we do, I do believe, I concur with that. We have to give the whole package away. Um because we've we've been keeping pieces of whatever to ourselves for a long time, um, and 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 really deceiving people, uh, making them think we've been giving all of us. Yeah, and uh, I'll tell you what's funny. Uh, we've scarcely, uh, we've barely scratched a limitless load, and it will be it will pay heavy dividends only if we mine it for the rest of our life and insist on giving away the entire product. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that that's a number of different contradictions, but it is a great descriptive mm-hmm. of, you know, what, what we do. Mm-hmm. And the dividends, the dividends are spiritual dividends and emotional dividends. They really are. If the family cooperates, Dad will soon see that he is suffering from a distortion of values. He will perceive that his spiritual growth is lopsided. That for an average man like himself, spiritual life, which was which does not include his family obligations, may not be so perfect after all. If the family will appreciate that Dad's current behavior is but a phase of his development, you know, the evangelical phase, all will be well. In the midst of an understanding and sympathetic family, these vagarities of Dad's spiritual infancy will quickly disappear. The opposite may happen should the family condemn and criticize. Dad may fail feel that for years his drinking has placed him on the wrong side of every argument, but that now he has become a superior person with God on his side. If the family persists in criticism, this fallacy may take a still greater hold on Father. Instead of treating the family as he should, he may retreat further into himself and feel he has spiritual justification for doing so. He may even leave, <laughs> you know what I mean, mm-hmm. because because he just doesn't feel comfortable in in the family in the family unit. Though the family does not fully agree with that spiritual activities, they should let him have his head, even if he displays a certain amount of neglect and irresponsibility toward the family. It is well to let him go as far as he likes in helping other alcoholics during those first days of convalescence. This will do more to ensure his sobriety than anything else. <clears throat> Let's look at this sentence for a second, Monty. 
helping other alcoholics. In other words, going out and finding a prospect, then turning him into a protege who you're taking through the step, and then they're going to end up being a friend. That's, that's finding and helping another alcoholic in the context of this book. It says, during those first days of convalescence. So doesn't that mean that almost from the get-go, you can go out and start to help other alcoholics? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about what about the what about the wisdom teaching that's so current in twelve step fellowships that you need a year before you can sponsor? Oh right, that, we hear that all the time. Doesn't that go at odds with what this book is saying? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I I know folks that if somebody asks them to be their uh, sponsor, they will tell them uh, that's fine, but I'm going to wait thirty days to see if you're serious. <laughs> yeah, and in the meantime, the guy dies. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the guy dies. Well, he he must not have really wanted it. He yeah. must not have really been serious. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of boneheads out there with zero experience, and you know, um, beware. You know, yeah. beware. That's that's all I can tell you. There has to be. You know, the people who have experience really have to stand up. That's what. That's what one of the things that happened in. Uh, uh, you know, in AA from, say, 1950 on was, you know, newcom- uh, the newcomers were starting to overtake the old-timers. All, all of a sudden, there were way more newcomers than there were old-timers. And I really think that from 50 to, say, 1990, uh, uh, people abdicated their responsibility. Their responsibility was grabbing these people and taking them through the steps. And for one reason or another, uh, the members in, in many different areas in Alcoholics Anonymous did not do that, didn't keep that up. And what happened was uh, the inmates started to run the asylum, and mm-hmm. you know now you get just any kind of any kind of uh, hobble gobble in the world is is passed on as as recovery wisdom in some in some of these uh, these support groups. And you know I I, I got to tell you I, it's because the old timers were overrun and abdicated their responsibility from say 1950 to you know 1990 or. Or so when uh, when the big book movement started to pick back up, yeah, and you know that's our fault, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I was I sat in a meeting here last week, and a newcomer, I think I've seen him in there maybe four or five times. Um, He but all pleaded for a sponsor, and there was no response from anyone. Nothing. And I sat there, and I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm booked because I've got this guy and this guy and this guy. And at the very least, I, you know, I, I put this on myself, too. At the very least, I could have said, well, you know, let's go out for coffee, you know. But nobody said anything, and I was just, I was dumbfounded. You know, one of the principles of the fellowship is the, when the hand, you know, when somebody reaches out for AA, the hand of AA must always be there. You know, that's a... That's a statement of unity or, or, or whatever, and, and that's absolutely true. But that does not mean that, you know, you need to take on a guy if it's, if it's inappropriate. Right, of or, course or, not. you know, it, it's not a good fit. But it does mean that you have to help him find somebody. You have to. Yeah. You know, uh, if, if you have just gone there to fill up and you're not interested in reaching out your hand, then you don't understand that you need to, you need to continue to mine <laughs> for a lifetime and give away the entire product to get the dividends. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dividends come from helping other people. It, they don't come from sitting in a chair, you yeah. know, uh, <laughs> night after night after night. Uh, they, they just don't. And you don't know that unless you're experienced with the recovery process. You mm-hmm. don't know what's available. How do you know what you don't know? Yeah, and uh, and and you know it's kind of up to up to us sometimes, Monty, to, to 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 talk about that. There's more. There's more available. Yeah. Uh, than than just mere you know a treacherous sobriety uh, by <laughs> sitting in a chair and you know hopefully trying to remember on a daily basis not to drink when in fact in fact you're you're really powerless. You know? Yeah. So. So um, anyway, you know you know how I feel. We we talk about it all the time. Yeah. Uh, uh, during uh, those first days of convalescence, this will do more to ensure his sobriety than anything else. Though some of his manifestations are alarming and disagreeable, we think that will be on firmer foundation when the man who is placing business or professional sex success ahead of spiritual development. Uh, you know, so. Um, 
So really, spiritual development needs to be placed ahead of business or professional success. And it's basically saying that, yes, you have to take family responsibilities, but if you're not taking the spiritual development seriously as well as the family responsibilities, you're going to disappoint both. You know, you're going to fail at both. So, um, so rather than fail at both, uh, the primary purpose is, uh, is to stay, stay sober, recover, and help, help others recover. And, and then you can fit everything else in after that. He will be less likely to drink again, and anything is preferable to that. Those of us who have spent much time in the world of spiritual make-believe have eventually seen the childishness of it. This dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose, accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. We have come to believe that he would like us to keep our heads in the clouds with him, but that our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. That is where our fellow travelers are, and that is where our work must be done. These are the realities for us. We have found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. You know, there's a great poem that was written by Sam Shoemaker. Have you ever have you ever heard the poem, I Stand by the Door, Monty? No. You know what, I'm going to dig it up, and uh, maybe maybe to finish out this workshop I'll read it, because I think it's so pertinent to where we have to place ourselves on the spiritual plane. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, there are people who, you know, go to India and study with the Dalai Lama and learn to pray and meditate, and, you know, they go off into silent retreats for two or three years at a time. As alcoholics or addicts, that's, we can't go that far. We need to stand by the door because it's by the door where we can help other people. Yes, the, the spiritual life is, is very attractive, and some people go really deeply into it. But if we go too deeply into it, to not be at a place where we can be helpful to our fellow suffering alcoholics or addicts, we're doing a huge disservice not only to mankind, you know, God and his, his, uh, and his children, but we're doing a disservice to, to to ourselves too. So, are you and, saying, Chris? Are you saying that that I can't sit on a hilltop playing kumbaya for the rest of my life? I, I don't think it would be profitable in a number <laughs> of different ways. And, and honestly, honestly, Monty, I don't think that's where God wants you. Yeah. I think God wants you behind a microphone. You know, that's that's where I think. And I think God wants you in your support group meetings. And I think God wants you sponsoring. And then, and then I think he, he wants you to make a little bit of money and you know, to, to do the other stuff that you got going on in your life. But, yeah. you know, you're uniquely suited. Right now you're especially uniquely suited uh, to really be carrying a message of depth and weight and really to be helpful to other alcoholics. And that's where I think he wants you. Yeah. If you called me up, to, you know, and told me that, you know, there's this, uh, there's this, this missionary work uh, deep in the heart of Africa that, and you, you know, you, you've, you you know, you feel drawn to, you know, working with the the aboriginal pygmies or, or something, and you're going to go there, uh, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a missionary or something. I would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Monty. You know what? I, I bet you God's got somebody else who can do that pygmy missionary work. <laughs> uh, I think you need to stick with the alcoholic. <laughs> you know, that's what I would tell you. The pygmy alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, well, if, you know, if there was some... We're out of time, my friend. Where are we at in this chapter? We're about we're a little more than halfway through. We'll finish this up next time. Okay. Okay, great. Great. Well I don't have any uh I don't have any ambitions to go to any pygmy tribes, to tell you the truth. Um and I and I agree with you one hundred percent. You know, a lot of people are burdened by something, but they're not called to it. And based on the burden, they go and try and do it, and they fall flat on their face. Um, you know, you know what I mean. I mean, they have a heart for it, but perhaps it's a heart to pray uh, for that or to help send somebody else. But they're not called to that by God, and so they go out there and they make a mess of it. You know, and, and I've, <laughs> yeah. I've seen that happen. And yet, the ones that are really called to whatever it is they're doing, uh, and I think the only way you know that is to get to know your Creator even more. And uh, there's, you know, there's different ways of doing that. And, and one is, uh, for me, is to be in his word, to have a conscious contact with him, like uh, uh, AA talks about, and to be honest with God. You know, I mean, he knows anyway. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting because 
I can be honest with somebody else. I can even be honest with myself. But there's some weird thing about maybe God won't find out, you know, uh-huh. about certain. So we have to be honest, honest to God. I think the more we know him, the more we get to know him, uh, the easier it is to, to hear his voice. And then we know if we're called to, to something or simply burdened by it. And I think I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, although that's a, that's a slogan we could talk about sometime that I can't stand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> For a number of reasons. Well, Chris, thank you. Monty, thank you. It's always uh, always a delight to, to be uh, batting these things back and forth with you. I love sharing my experience, and sometimes my opinions flow in there a little bit. Yeah. I guess, I guess that's okay, too. That but, is okay. That's perfectly but, uh, all right. But anyway, it's always a blast uh, talking with you. All right, Chris. Folks, don't forget to tune in to all of our shows here at TakeTorRadio.com. And until next Sunday, God bless you guys. Serenity for you. Until once again, we walk through the big book. Bye-bye. Wow. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. <laughs>